Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Welcome to this Bible lesson. Who is Jesus Christ? At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. And when you worship here, you worship the one and only God, the true God of the universe. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 affirm it. They say this, for in Jesus, the Christ, the the Christ is a title. It means the Messiah. In Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. What a powerful statement about who Jesus Christ is. There's a sign hanging right behind my head that is that very sentiment. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus, the Christ, is God is God. Colossians 2.10, he is the head. What does that mean? He is the head and we are the body. He is the head of the church. We are the church age believers. We are the body. He is over all rule. Everybody reports to him. He is the CEO of the universe. He is over all authority. Why? Because he put all authority in place. There is no one who is in an authority position in this world that didn't get that authority position bestowed by him. He is the Lord, God the Son, which means he is 100% deity. He is 100% God. He is fully God. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. He is 100% true humanity. So he is fully man as well. And the two separate and distinct natures, God and man, are combined in one person forever, making him the uniquely born one of the universe. And nothing in the universe happens without the Lord's permission. Now, if the opening verses, Colossians 2, 9, and 10, sound familiar to you, they are the exact same verses that I taught last week in the beginning. And it's appropriate to repeat them because you weren't listening last week. Amen? Amen? Amen. You know you weren't because you didn't even notice. (laughs) All right, seriously now. We're beginning our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians today. And the subject matter is the Christ. There is nowhere in the Bible that does a better job of describing who Jesus Christ is than the letter to the Colossians. And it's so funny to me 
that that would be the case because the Colossae was a nowhere town with a bunch of nothings in it. And the fact that Paul even wrote a letter to the Colossians is a miracle. It's just amazing. You, one of the things you want to think is, why did he write to these guys? And so we're going to find that out. But in this letter, in the first chapter of this letter, if you just go through that, which I'm going to recommend to you, just go through that and see all the gifts that God has unfolded for you, this amazing God, sovereign God of the universe, Jesus Christ, it will boggle your mind. So the subject matter of Colossians is Christ, our God and our Lord and our Savior and our only role model and our friend. And these two verses describe him perfectly. Why does Barah Ministries exist? At Barah Ministries, we introduce people to the Lord. And we make a difference by teaching the Word of God verse by verse from the Lord's perspective and not from man's perspective. When you're looking at life from behind his eyes, it is a completely different experience than looking at life through your own. Barah Ministries is provided by God for the benefit of unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers get the gospel message, the good news concerning Jesus Christ's salvation offer. I went to a Suns game recently and I almost fainted because there was one of those guys out front with the megaphone and he's evangelizing to people. Have you ever seen people doing that at a game? And most of them are sending the the, the bad news, the condemnation message. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're going straight to hell. And God will rain down his terror on you. And, I'll, and you know, I, it's, it's good when I see those guys because I go up and I just start loud talking them. I'm a, I'm a different person at sporting events. And, I, you know, I, let me just apologize about that. But I hate when I hear that condemnation message because I consider it to be a direct attack on my best friend, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, this guy, I almost fainted because he said, if you're an unbeliever, you're a sinner, but you can be a saint. He was actually giving the good news that believing in Christ takes you from sinner to saint. Amen? And that most Christians don't even understand that. Christians think because they sin, they're a sinner. Sinners are unbelievers. We are saints. Look at all of Paul's letters. He doesn't say, hi, I'm writing to the sinners at Rome. He says, I'm writing to the saints at Rome. I'm writing to the saints at Colossae. Amen? Amen. We are saints. We don't like our title. We want to listen to the world and then take our title down. We want to go back to the elemental things of the world. We're going to hear about that in Colossians. We're better than that because God made us better than that. So anyway, unbelievers get the gospel message from here, which is the good news concerning Christ's salvation offer. The good news is, in about one second, you can seal your eternal fate by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can never lose it under any circumstance. Believers get the Word of God from Barah Ministries, the Bible, the inerrant canon of Scripture. Inerrant. There are no errors in it. So that those who study here can have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord. Well, why bother studying the Word of God? That's the only reason, the only way to get to know God. That's one reason. But here's a good reason, to be able to spot false teachers and their false teachings. Let's look at something being taught in the world that you can pull up on your own on the Internet. 
Why the Bible is Not the Word of God by Alexander Barone of the Huffington Post. Perhaps it should first be noted that I am a licensed minister in the missionary Baptist tradition, to which I say, big deal, you're a religious person. Okay, religion is Satan's system, so you've already shot yourself in the head. I believe in preaching the Word of God. I believe in saving of souls from the clutches of dark forces. Ooh, oh. I believe that God is all-loving and all-powerful and that his son, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Son of God, not was, is, who has given us a way to live life fully and abundantly. You know what? If that's what you think Jesus Christ did, you're missing the complete point. Jesus Christ isn't Mahatma Gandhi telling you that if you deny yourself, you'll have a great life. He saved you. It's a completely different thing. So he's, he's dumbing down God. Yet I don't believe, here's the key, I don't believe that the Holy Bible is the infallible word of God. I don't believe you had me. So I'm going to say it to you again. I don't believe that the Holy Bible is the infallible word of God. Well, what is it then? What is it, just a bunch of stories? A bunch of guys were sitting around getting high and writing stuff? It's absolutely the infallible word of God. But if you go back to his opening comments, he believes in, in saving souls from the clutches of darkness. On what basis? Because of what he says? Or on the basis of the fact that the Bible is the truth? The Holy Bible is a collection of Christian texts that is the result of refinement by men who thought they were led by God to discern his teachings. <laughs> I, you know why I love reading that stuff? Because sitting in a chair all weekend and summarizing all the research you've done for the week gets pretty boring, so you need a laugh every once in a while. And I like reading this stuff because it's hilarious. That's a joke. But this is the stuff that's being, being taught. This is false. What makes what he says more unbelievable is what God says in his word. This man's beliefs do not matter, but because they're in writing and because they're on the internet, which is allegedly a credible source, people believe this crap. What matters is the truth. And the truth found in the word of God says this to refute his claims. Second Timothy Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say, All Scripture is God-breathed into the writers of Scripture in such a way that they write exactly what he thinks without any modification of their will, their personality, or their literary style. If you looked at, Paul, at Peter's Greek, it's horrible. But it's still got the message across. All scripture is God breathed into the writers of scripture. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God might be mature, totally equipped for every good work. Completely contradicts what our buddy is saying there. Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 20 and 21 say this, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation. 
And no prophecy, no biblical prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, carried along by God the Holy Spirit, who is fully God, spoke directly from the exact thinking of the God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is the mind of Christ. That's what it says it is. That's what it proves itself to be. So we implore you to always compare what you learn, both at Barah Ministries and in the world, with what the Bible has to say. Somebody tells you something stupid, you just ask yourself a real simple question. Where does it say that in the Bible? And I don't mean take one verse out of context to make your point. I mean read the context of a passage, compare it with other passages, and see what God is saying to us through the Word. That's what we do here. And you are not going to sit at home and do this by reading a couple BS scriptures on your phone. You need somebody who is teaching this full-time, who's into it full-time, who has a context full-time to help you understand what's going on in there. And then you check out what they say to see if it's accurate. And you do have the ability to do that. So we implore you, compare what you learn to what the Bible has to say. Why? Because God has an enemy, Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world. We live in Satan's kingdom. John chapter 14, verse 30, the Lord says, I will not speak much more with you, apostles, for the ruler of the world is coming, even though he has no hold over me. He's going to come down. He's going to betray. He's going to get one of my guys to betray me. I'm going to be led to the cross. I'm going to be slaughtered. And it has no effect because I'm going to give my life up. Nobody's taking my life. That's what he says. Satan only wants a part of us, though. He wants our will. He deceives us. He causes us to suffer. Yet neither of these things are nearly as bad as us allowing him to influence our will. And His insidious methods of destruction are designed to corrode our spiritual lives And they are very powerful against us. And when we permit him to destroy us, when we give him our will, that's the worst thing that we could ever do. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the remedy against Satan. What does he say? You shall love the Lord your God unconditionally with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's all you have to do in your relationship with God. All. Does that sound like some? Answer me. It's not partial. Get naked and get in the pool. Be dipping your toe in the pool. He wants all of you, and he deserves it. All is not some. We don't want to give the devil a single opportunity. Today's Bible lesson, who wrote the letter we're about to study? Who wrote the letter we're about to study? Well, today we begin our study of a biblical letter written for believers at first century Colossae. The letter has four chapters and 95 verses. By contrast, the letter to the Romans, which we have studied, has 16 chapters and 433 verses. And what we just finished, the first letter to the Corinthians, had 16 chapters and 437 verses. Well, our study of each letter begins with a several-lesson overview. Have you ever picked up the Bible and just started reading it? 
You know, there's certainly uh, nothing wrong with doing that, but I'll tell you, I never do that. Instead, I approach biblical study as I approach life with questions. God the Holy Spirit is a trustworthy teacher who loves answering our questions. Well, here are a few of the questions that come to mind as we begin this study, and these are some of the questions we will answer in our overview. Who wrote the letter we're about to study? Who was the letter directed to? Where do the people live who are receiving this letter? What do we know about the author of the letter? What do, what did the author, why, when did the author write the letter? Where was the author when he wrote the letter? What was God's purpose in getting the author to write the letter? What does God want the author to communicate to the intended audience of the letter? Who is the main, what is the main message of the letter? And what relevance does the letter have to our lives today? Now, you know, that's a lot of questions, right? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you something, something that makes it important to answer those questions. I know that if you're a Christian, you have heard people talk about the book of James. James was the Lord's half-brother, and James says, faith without works is meaningless. Have you ever heard that? Okay. So what stupid pastors will do is they'll take that and they'll say, well, maybe you weren't saved at all. Maybe you only had a head belief, but you didn't have a heart belief. If you had faith, but you don't work. See, we're, we're into the doo-doo life, right? We want to do, 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 do. And let's be clear. We have a part in the, Christi- in the Christian way of life. We have, we have a part. But if you go through those questions, you know, who wrote the letter? Who was he talking to? When did he write it? Why did he write it? What was the main message of it? There's no way that you could come away with the conclusion that that verse about faith without works is meaningless has anything to do with salvation. He's talking to believers in Christ. Not only that, he's talking to Jewish believers in Christ who were legalistic. See? So when you study the Bible, you've got to get deeper than some surface crap that some pastor wants to use against you so he can get you to pay your way to salvation. You can't buy salvation. And because these pastors have big congregations, mega churches, you know, were, were there any mega churches in the first century? There weren't. There people, there were about 10 or 12 people meeting in a house. And I don't know what the houses were like back then, but I don't think they had air conditioning, amen? <laughs> they were kind of hovels. So those questions are really important when you're thinking about some passage you're reading in the Bible. And you need to know that because it provides the context. So in our overview, we're going to provide the context of these four power-packed chapters with 95 verses that will blow your mind about who Jesus Christ is. Because I think it's really important that you know who the person is you worship. And I think it's important for you to know him as a person, to know his work, and to not treat him like an object. Amen? 
All right, so in today's lesson, we begin our overview of the letter to the Colossians, answering these and other questions as they come up, because that'll get us off to a great start. I'm so excited, because after 22 years, I finally think I'm getting the hang of this teaching thing. Isn't that awesome? So good. All right, let's hear some music. As believers in Christ, we are not a people loaded with beliefs. We are a people inculcated with truth. Psalm 25, verse 5 says, Lord, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Well, here's Lisa Page to sing to us about one of her discoveries, the truth. To sacrifice for me Said that you died At a place called Calvary A place called Calvary I never knew uh, That you loved me that way mm. So much to die Without nothing to say I was in the darkness Oh, <laughs> 
Pentecostals in here wanted to get up. <laughs> they wanted it. They want to get up and start waving. <laughs> the truth is free. I wanted to do it too. I just I'm not a Pentecostal, but I wanted to do it. That what a gorgeous song and so true, isn't it? You know, one of the things that kind of gets me crazy when the when the kids used to come here, you know, whenever the songs come on, they all get up and that's the time to go get chocolate milk. But, you know, these, these songs are amazing. This is another way to worship. And, and the words to these songs are right out of the Bible, right? And it was just what we were talking about. The Bible's not just a bunch of stories. It's the absolute truth. And what a great thing to be in a kingdom run by a liar that's full of lies and deceptions, much of which we've bought into, and have one lighthouse beacon of truth that we can go to to get reoriented to what's really going on in the world. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, as you take us on a new journey in our study of the letter to the Colossians, help us get to know you. Help us to get to really, really know you. And help us to get to know your Son, our Lord, the magnificent, Jesus, the Christ. Teach us that the life you have given us is completely sufficient and that it needs no additions and rid us of the more, more, more mentality that Satan tries to inculcate into us here in his kingdom. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, who wrote the letter we're about to study? Who wrote the letter we're about to study? Well, as you have probably guessed, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. A great way to start the study of a biblical letter is to read the whole thing. So between now and next week, I would like for you to read the whole letter. It's four chapters, and it will take 13 minutes. Uh, Since there are no pictures and since some of you are slow readers, it will take you 18 to 20 minutes. Amen? All right, but, you know, maybe you can get one of those kid Bibles who's got pictures in it, and you can get through it a little faster. But uh, all four chapters, all 95 verses, and as you do, see if any of the answers to the questions that I suggested in the introduction illuminate themselves as you read. One of the things you'll see in this letter structurally is exactly how God operates and how how he operates is so different from how the world operates because what he starts with in chapter 1 is the solution to the problem that's going on in Colossae. Chapter 1 is the solution. Chapter 2 surfaces the problem. And then chapters 3 and 4 say... Now, based on the fact that false teachers are trying to do this to you, here's how to live life. That's what those four chapters are about. The solution, chapter one. The problem, chapter two. The victory, chapters three and four. So that's what we're going to be studying, and we'll take as long as we need to to do it. So let's begin by listening to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 29. I'm not going to inflict all four of the chapters on you right now. But what I want you listening for as you hear this is what is the magnificent stuff that God has given to you as the solution to all your problems? Because it's right here in this 
first chapter. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul, Paul was the writer of this. Timothy was his understudy and was with him when he wrote. Colossians 1, 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Oh, wait a minute. Why didn't he say the sinners? Why didn't he say the sinners at Colossae? Because they're believers in Christ. He's talking to believers, and we are not sinners. We are what? Saints. Saints. That's right. You didn't. Yeah, I, I'm sure you all got up this morning. You went to the mirror and said, "Good morning, saint." Right? Is that what you did? No. You said, "Why hasn't this melted off?" Because you're eating too much. That's why. So to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Colossians 1.3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, Colossians 1.4, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Colossians 1.5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which hope you had previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, Colossians 1.6, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, Colossians 1.7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Colossians 1.8. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. In the Greek, this chapter is just one long sentence. You know, an English teacher would have a heart attack reading this because it's just one long run-on sentence. But boy, what power-packed stuff in this long run-on sentence. Colossians 1.9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How often when you pray, do you pray for the people that you love to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? That is a powerful, powerful request. For somebody you love on God's behalf. Colossians 1.10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What is walk? It's a lifestyle. When you walk, it's referring to your lifestyle. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And what is a, how do you walk? What is a lifestyle that is worthy of the Lord? One that pleases him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work meaning doing exactly what he wants you to do and increasing simultaneously in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.11 Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously, Colossians 1.12 Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. As a saint, you have an inheritance set aside for you in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, with moth and rust will not destroy, K 
cannot be taken from you under any circumstances. Amen? And there are people who tell you, well, if you're a believer in Christ, but you keep on sinning, maybe you didn't believe at all, and you'll lose your salvation. They are high. They are high. Why? Because you didn't do your salvation, so you can't undo it. A God who never changes his mind did your salvation, and he doesn't change anything ever because he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't go back on his word. Amen? He's perfect. You can't lose your salvation. If you spend five minutes of your time worrying about something you do can help you lose your salvation, you are wasting your energy, wasting your time. Replace that worry with prayer. Amen? All right. Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's what we were born into. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through the Lord and for the Lord. Colossians 1.17 He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds together the universe by the word of his power. There is one reason why the sun doesn't come streaming toward the earth and burn this planet up. Do you realize that if the sun was one, one football field closer to the earth than it is right now, that it would burn us up? It would burn us to a crisp. Well, why isn't it? Because there's somebody holding the universe together with the word of his power. And I get so mad when I hear people say, well, you know, the, the karma, you know, the karma. Well, the universe gave me an opportunity. You know, I just want to punch him in the face. I do. I do. I know that's not a Christian way to feel. But maybe it is. It's a righteous anger. It's like Jesus turning over the tables. I just want to punch him in the face because it's so degrading to think that there's some gig force in the universe. Oh, well, if I do a good thing, it's going to come back to me as good. You're lucky to be on the planet. That whole philosophy is just goofy. And I tell you, I'm watching The Amazing Race, right? I'm telling you, I'm, I'm up to season 19, I think. And... Every other word out of these people's mouth is karma, right? And all the places they go are the Buddhist temples and shrines. And you see all these people all around the world, billions and billions of people, lighting incense and making wishes and smelling smoke and bowing down to images and stuff like this. It's just ridiculous. Ridiculous. And wanting us to join them in it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, we have a God who is before all things, existed before everything else did, and in him all things hold together. Perfection. 
He's not going to let one star collide with another star. He's not going to let the universe be blown up by some goofball who has a suitcase punching a button. Not happening. Not happening. He's not going to let us run out of water. He's not going to let the climate get too hot. You know, I was, I was studying this weekend, and I was thinking about the scientific method. <coughs> because when you start studying Colossians, it makes you start, Colossians, it starts making you question everything. And so I had to go back to my high school days. This is 62 years ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And they taught us in physics, in physical science and chemistry, they taught us the scientific method. And what they said is that, and scientific method is empirical. What does it mean? It, it relates to what you see. And so the first step in the scientific process is observation. You have to see the thing. Okay, hold that thought. Evolution. Evolution says that, you know, a tadpole was swimming around, grew feet, walked up onto the earth, turned into a gorilla, and it turned into a human being. Who saw that? Who was watching when that occurred? Somebody says that the universe was created by the Big Bang Theory. There was just this Big Bang and all this perfection happened. Who was watching that? Because in scientific method, the first thing has to be observation. Then the next thing you do is research to prove that what you observed is actually accurate. And there, there are seven or eight steps of it, and I'm going to share that with you as we go forward. But it, when, when I remembered what I had learned in high school, that science, science first and foremost, is observation, it, it, it cued me that somebody has to see it. Who saw evolution? Who saw this? Who saw the Big Bang? And I'll tell you, by the way, who saw the Big Bang. The Benihah Elohim saw the Big Bang. The angels Job 38, 1 to 7, the angels saw Jesus Christ snap his finger and create the earth and the universe. They witnessed it. Now, have you guys talked to any of the angels who witnessed that and gotten their viewpoint about the whole thing? Because I haven't. (laughs) But they saw it. There's a reason in the Bible why every time... The fallen angels come in contact with Christ. They shudder. There's a reason why every time human beings come in touch with angelic creatures or Christ, they fall down flat on their face. There's a reason. Power. Glory. Being around glory will make you get down on your knees and fall flat on your face. See? We've got a lot that we're going to learn about this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is also the head of the body. That's Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. What does that mean? He is preeminent. What does that mean? He is peerless. What does it mean? There's a song. There is none like you. Colossians 1.19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness of what? 
the fullness of deity. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Jesus Christ in human form, Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile all things to God the Father, having made peace through the blood of his cross. What does that mean? There was a, there was a breach, an enmity between us and God the Father. It, Jesus Christ tore down the barrier of the dividing wall, and that's called reconciliation. And we are now reconciled to God the Father, and we have peace with him, which means what? He has nothing against us. He is for us. So who can be successful against us? Nobody. And we didn't get up thinking that this morning when we were looking in the mirror either. We didn't think we were a saint, and we didn't think we had the sovereign God of the universe on our side. No, what we were worried about is what bill we're going to be able to not going to be able to pay because we decided to buy those shoes instead of paying the bill. Amen. And he's going to pay it anyway. Amen. You notice I didn't get an amen. The ladies didn't say nothing. <laughs> How did he know that I bought those shoes? God, this guy he must be psychic. Yeah, it's the karma. It's the karma. Yeah. <laughs> Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Sovereign God of the universe, Colossians 1.21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, while before you were his enemy, he died for you when you were his enemy, Colossians 1.22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death to present you before God the Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. How does God the Father look at you? If you weren't looking in a, in a mirror in the morning when you get up and you were instead looking at God the Father, go behind his eyes and tell me what he sees. If you're a believer in Christ, what he sees, what he's looking at is a person who is holy blameless, and beyond reproach. Amen? You don't think about yourself like that. You, you, you trip over something and you say, what an idiot. <coughs> Next time you trip over something, you trip, oh God, what a holy, blameless, and beyond, <laughs> beyond reproach, beyond reproach person I am. <laughs> right you make a mistake and you say ah oh, I am such a saint <laughs> I'm saying stuff like that you don't know yourself Colossians 1.23 if indeed you continue in the faith if indeed you continue in the faith oh I knew it I knew it there's a catch no that's a first class condition if if and it's true, if indeed you continue in the faith, which of course you are, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, my physical body, I do my share on behalf of his body, the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions 
Colossians 1.25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. God was walking around one day and he said, hmm, who am I going to pick to replace Judas Iscariot, the guy who betrayed me and had me crucified? Let's see. I know. How about Paul, the worst person of all time? How about if I pick him? God the Father said, what's that going to do, man? Well, I just want them to know that I don't need them to be good for me to be able to do something with them. Amen? Amen? Amen. Take all the pressure off yourself. Let the air out of the balloon. Of this church, I, Paul, was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Colossians 1.26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, hidden from the age of Israel, hidden from, from the age of the Gentiles, hidden from the age of the hypostatic union, but fully manifested to his church-age saints. Oh, what mystery. Ooh, should we get popcorn? Colossians 1.27. To whom God the Father will to make known. What are the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles? What's the mystery among the Gentiles? Oh, Israel is the chosen nation. The Jews are the chosen race. The Gentiles are... You guys are all Gentiles. What's this mystery among the Gentiles? Christ indwelling you. That's another thing you didn't say when you was looking in the mirror this morning, believers in Christ. You didn't get up and say, hey, Christ is indwelling me. Did you? When you think about some problem that you have that you think is insurmountable, did you think about the fact that the sovereign God of the universe chose to take up residence inside of you instead of being in some building in this age? Did you think about that? I guarantee you, you didn't. That's why you need to come here, because I'm thinking about that for you to remind you over and over and over again about how magnificent you are because of what Christ did for you. Christ indwelling you the hope of glory. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Colossians 1.29, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. That's the first chapter. And if, as you saw in the very beginning of this, I got a little emotional. I've been emotional a lot studying this letter because this is about my best friend. This is amazing. I just stand there. I feel like a deer in headlights looking at all and being reminded of all the things that he has done for us. So when you read that chapter again, it might be worthwhile for you to write down all the gifts God has given to the Christian that are highlighted in those nine verses because that's the last thing I did before I finished up this lesson. And I'm going to share that with you in a future lesson. It is a fabulous start to a great letter 
And when we return from the break, we'll take the offering and then we'll begin our look at this amazing letter about our amazing God. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong. At the end of the line, will all the other not quite? Will all the never get it right? But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody. We're trying to tell everybody. All about somebody who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus When Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul For the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go down, down, down In history As another blood-bought Faithful member of the family And if they all forget my name Well, that's fine I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. So let me go down, down, down in history. Has another blood faithful member of the family. And if they all forget my name, well, that's fine with me. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus.
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, who wrote the letter we are about to study? Who wrote the letter we're about to study? Well, we know that that was the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about giving. He said, you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, and what he's referencing there is his first missionary journey, After I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Philippians chapter 4 verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, in Paul's second missionary journey, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Philippians 4 17. Not that I seek the gift itself for myself, even though I appreciate it. But I seek for the profit which increases to your account from God when you give. And the lady who was doing all that giving was a lady named Lydia, who had a church in Philippi in her home. And she was a very wealthy woman who, (coughs) excuse me, who raised earthworms and crushed them. And the blood of these earthworms was used to create a purple dye that was the dye used to make robes and clothing for royalty. So she, she had bank. But funny thing is, Paul ministered to a lot of churches, but the one church that supported him financially was the church at Philippi. Now, I know what Paul means. One of the great pleasures of my life is giving, and it has been a pleasure over the years to give of my time, talent, and treasure to anyone who wants to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they can learn free of charge, and people all over the world are learning about God free of charge, courtesy of this ministry. One of the things I most appreciate is that you have joined me in the giving. I don't give of myself once in a while. I give of myself all the time. And that's what the Lord wants from us, our all. And if, we, if you listen to Barah Ministries, we ask that you contribute to Barah Ministries. And no amount is too small. And there are a lot of ways to contribute. You can do it on the website. You can do it in person. You can do it on the app. You can do it through the mail. You can do it by carrier pigeon. There are a lot of ways to get this done. I want to make, I want you to make giving to Barah Ministries a routine. Another great pleasure of my life is to watch how God blesses your giving and makes it have an impact all over the world and places all over the world with people that you know nothing about. There are people who worship this in this ministry all over the world that you don't know one thing about in places that I haven't even heard of. So think about that. Simultaneously, God gives abundant credits to your account when you give. So let's do that. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with one of his always inspiring offering messages. Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barah Ministries. Barah Ministries is a worldwide Christian church. This is a place for real people who want to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God. And we know the Bible is the truth of the Word of God. And as I look back, as we studied Corinthians, <clears throat> I can't help but just think of all the things that they went through, the quarrels, the immorality, the false worship, and, him ha- and, and Paul even having to straighten out 
resurrection for them. They had so many things going wrong. You know, in Corinth, it was just immorality and division. They had the rich fighting the poor, and the, or the poor hating the rich, and the rich treating the poor poorly. You had the moral and the immoral, and don't even want to bring up the spiritual and the karma. But they had that going on. I'm sure they did. And, you know, and they had the, the, the rivalries between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's just so much disunity there. And as we go through that, it's, you know, Paul was trying to correct all that. And I just really feel like a lot of that Corinthian the book is just calling for unity. It's calling for them to come together. And a perfect example of that is our triune God, three separate and distinct persons and personalities coming together and acting all as one. They never contradict one another. They always work together in perfect unity, perfect harmony. And, I, you know, as a church, our goal is to bring believer, unbelievers into this church. We're supposed to bring unity to the world. We're supposed to bring, give them a choice, give the unbelievers a choice so that we can unite unbelievers and believers. And then in this church, you know, we should have unity here by studying the Bible. We're studying one truth. And we can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, or verse 10, Now I, Paul, exhort you, fellow, fellow believers in Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there are no rivalries among you. Instead, that you be made complete and in the same mind and in the same purpose. You can see that with the Trinity. You can see that in this church. And that's what our goal is of this church, is to bring unbelievers into this unity. And that's just something that's hard to do sometimes. And something you don't see in that Bible or in this verse, it doesn't say anything about feelings. It doesn't say, you know, we need to have all the same feelings. We all need to be happy and we all need to be, you know, that's not part of it. And sometimes when you're giving the gospel to unbelievers, your feelings are going to get hurt or their feelings are going to get hurt. And you don't see anything in the unity of Christ. You don't see really anything in the Bible about talking about feelings. Do you? Really? Is there any verses that say, focus on your feelings? Or is it focus on Christ? You know? And if we focus on Christ, we're going to tell people. We're going to bring unbelievers into this church. And that's, the, that's the, one of our main tasks here, is to not just look at everybody as different. You know, Christ saved his enemies. And unbelievers are not our enemies. So why shouldn't we save them as well? And it's something that we should really work tirelessly every day, all of our moments of our life, like Pastor said. And I know his feelings get hurt sometimes, but our feelings shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't when we're going out and, you know, that was supposed to be funny, but nobody thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> that hurt my feelings. But, you know, that the point of it is, you know, it's, it's what matters is truth and not feelings. And people need to hear the truth. Everybody around us, from the cashier at Circle K to the cashier at McDonald's to the cashier at um, a, or, um, say again? Ross. Ross, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ross or even the fancy stores. You know, you got Nordstrom. Even those ladies, they need, they need our prayers and they need Christ. And so we thank you for everybody for always giving to this ministry and always supporting this ministry because that's really what we're here for is to be full-time Christians not just compartmentalize it to Sunday or not just compartmentalize it to when we feel like it, when we're with people. You know, we need to show out. We need to be sons. We are sons, and we're, we bring the light to this world. And so we really appreciate it, and I'm glad you, all, you guys all stuck around even with our technical difficulties today. And I just wanted to bring up one other point was just to everybody in our congregation. We're here for you. Any feedback you have about the message, the music, me, anything, my stuff, Let's hear about it. Let's, let's all work together. Let's have the same mind. And we can't have that unless we, we hear from you. 
And I don't want a big complaint line coming, no, no single-star reviews or anything, but we need to reach out to each other. Pastor is completely open, and I'm open, and we're all open to hear from you. So let's work together to make this the best ministry for Christ we can. So thank you very much. She's crazy. And turn off. Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, Who Wrote the Letter We Are About to Study? Who Wrote the Letter to the Colossians? And that was Paul, of course. Thank you, Deacon Denny, for the great 
uh, offering message. We are not cruise control Christians. We are not cafeteria Christians. We don't pick and choose the things we want to believe. We are not closet Christians. We don't hide our Christianity under a bushel. So we find out immediately in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, who wrote the letter that we're about to study. It was Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God the Father. Now that word apostle means that the person it is attributed to saw the resurrected Christ with their own eyes. So that's what that means. And Paul saw the resurrected Christ with his own eyes. Where did he see the resurrected Christ with his own eyes? On the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, where he got knocked off his high horse. And what he was getting ready to do is he was, he was killing Christians within his own area, and he had gone to the chief priests and asked for permission to go to areas outside of his area to kill Christians. And so he, was on the, he had secured the, the blessing and was going over to, it would be the equivalent of him going from the United States to Europe and killing people. Because his single-handed goal was to wipe out the Christian church. So the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, and we will learn what the Bible has to say about the Apostle Paul in a future lesson, because I admire him, and I think there are a lot of things that we need to know about him, especially, though, what the Bible has to say about him. But for now, let's just learn a few things. Paul lived to the ripe old age of 63, and that should shock you a little bit, because he was a very accomplished man for only living 63 years. He was born in 5 A.D., and he died in 67 A.D. And it's uncertain how he died, but most of the speculation centers around the fact that he was beheaded by the order of the fifth emperor of Rome, Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. Nero, as he was called, did the world a favor in 68 AD by killing himself, and he was the first Roman emperor to do so. If you ever uh, have the need or in the mood to read about a real monster, check out some of the descriptions of the man who killed his own mother, who castrated a young boy and married him, and who burned Christians alive in the public square. That was Nero. And I hope he is enjoying himself in the lake of fire as we speak. As a young man, Paul was known as Saul of Tarsus, a man from this historic city in south-central Turkey in the region of Cilicia. He was hell-bent on murdering all the Christians he could or sponsoring the murder of all the Christians he could. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee well-versed in the law of Moses. That's one of the biggest understatements of all time, that he was well-versed in the law of Moses. He knew every jot, every tittle. He knew everything about the law. And he described himself as a person who, as it related to the law, was perfect. Liar. And (laughs) And he was a Roman citizen. There was nothing better than being a Jew and a Roman citizen, and there were very few people who had both of those distinctions. If you check out the book of Acts, there was a time when he was being beaten, and it was unlawful 
to beat a Roman citizen. And they just assumed that because he was a Jew, he wasn't a Roman, and he had to get them straightened out. And it was funny because not only did he get him straightened out, but he made him go in front of the people and admit that they had made the mistake, which was beautiful. Jesus intervened in Paul's life on the Damascus Road. The risen Savior appeared to Saul. Remember, that's the criteria for an apostle. You had to see the risen Savior, the resurrected from the dead Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face, an encounter that completely transformed him. This man, Saul, became the beloved apostle, saint, evangelist, theologian, and pastor that we now call Paul. Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament, 13 letters, and if not half by volume, certainly more than half in importance. He wrote 10 letters to the body of Christ, the church-age believers. You are a church-age believer. We are in the fourth dispensation of divine history, and it's called the church age. It's the age that happened immediately after the cross and before the next divine event called the exit resurrection of the church. Exonostasis is the Greek word, and the term typically applied to it is the rapture. There will be a time when all believers in Christ are plucked off the earth. That will be the end of the church age. And when that event happens, the earth and the universe as we know it has a thousand and seven years left. So don't ever let anybody tell you that we're in the end times. We are not even close to the end times. We are in the middle, just to the right of the middle times. We're just to the right of the cross. So Paul wrote, about how Christians should live in response to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. What would be one word that would describe that? That Paul wrote about how Christians should live in response to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. What one word describes that? What'd you say? Walk. Not bad. Zoe's not a bad answer, the resurrection life, but it's walk. What Paul described to us is how we ought to walk. How we ought to walk is in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in all respects. So here are those ten letters and the time and sequence in which they are reported to be written. So 1 Thessalonians was written in 52 A.D., 2 Thessalonians in 53 A.D., Galatians in 54 A.D., 1 and 2 Corinthians in 57 A.D. We've studied 1 Corinthians. Romans, 57 A.D., Colossians, the book we're about to study, was written in 62 A.D., and you notice that it has a P next to it, which means it was one of Paul's prison epistles. Any of the epistles that have a P next to them are epistles that he wrote from prison. Brother had some time on his hands, amen? (laughs) While he was being abused in prison, he was writing epistles. Ephesians was written in 62 AD, and it is a prison epistle. Philippians was written in 62 AD, it is a prison epistle. And Philemon was written in 63 AD, and it was a prison epistle. And I think we will study Philemon's next after Colossians, because it's really short, and it's really connected to Colossians. 
and then we'll study Ephesians. So, Paul wrote three letters to pastors. They are 1 Timothy, which he wrote in 64 AD, Titus, which he wrote in 64 AD, and 2 Timothy, which he wrote in 67 AD, and that was a prison epistle, and he knew that it was curtains for him because he mentioned it in that letter. So that was the first question. You know, the first question of this lesson is, who wrote the letter we're about to study? We now know it's Paul, and we know he wrote 13 letters, which represents over half the the New Testament, and he was writing to the church, to you, Gentiles. Now, by the way, that's God's sense of humor, because he, he wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. And the Lord said, hmm, who should I send to teach the Gentiles? (laughs) I'm going to send somebody who wants nothing to do with the Gentiles, Paul. All right, the second question on our list of questions is, who is the letter that we're about to study directed to? Who was it written to? The letter is directed to a group of first century believers in Christ who live in a small town in modern-day Turkey called Colossae. The church was in the home of people. And why would the Apostle Paul write such a profound letter to such a small group of people in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere to a group of people he has never met nor visited? That would be like the, the Apostle Paul is a baller. Okay, so I don't know who you think the most famous person in the world is, but just imagine that the most famous person in the world wrote a letter to Barah Ministries, a little nowhere ministry in the middle of nowhere, Mesa, Arizona, with a bunch of nothing people in it. That's what this letter to the Colossians is like. And everybody would scratch their heads like, why would he write to that group of people? I mean, that place is nowhere. Colossae had what was the center of commerce for a period of time. It had a road that went right through it. And then all of a sudden, they changed the road. And then all of a sudden, people were not coming through there anymore. And so then, all of a sudden, it was a nowhere place. So that's what happened. Yet Paul wrote to these people. He never visited them. This is an intriguing question. Why would he bother writing a letter to the Colossians? The third question we deal with is, where do people live who are receiving the letter? Well, Colossae is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. Ephesus still exists today. Uh, The people who live there call it Ephes, but it's in Turkey. And it's a place where the Apostle Paul spent three years. Other cities around Colossae are Laodicea, which if you've ever stuck your nose in the book of Revelation, you've heard of Laodicea. It was a place where really wealthy people lived. There are people who made their money selling black wool from sheeps. And then another place called Heropolis. So you may remember Laodicea from the gospel message that we've taught over the years. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Here's what the Lord had to say to the Laodicean believers. He said, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, know your deeds. That you, like the water in your homes, are neither cold nor hot. Laodicea existed between two cities, Heropolis, which sent down hot water, and then another city below that sent up cold water. So the water, that, as it came into their home, was lukewarm. 
And when you drink lukewarm water, what people typically do is they, poof, they spit it out. They hate it. So that's what the Lord's talking about here. You, like the water in your homes, are neither cold nor hot. And I, the Lord Jesus Christ, wish that you were cold or hot. I wish you were a believer or an unbeliever. Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm, like the water in your homes, in other words, religious, and you are neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God hates religious people, if he hated. He loves everybody unconditionally. But he does not like religious people. Why? Because they are phony. They don't just say, I, he loves atheists. I, I don't, there's no God. I am like you. No. Or a believer, oh, I love my Lord. <laughs> this wave. All right? He likes that. But he doesn't like people who are phony, who are pretending like they care about Jesus Christ, but they really don't. Roman Catholics, 1.2 billion people in the world are worshiping another Jesus. Their Jesus, according to their catechism, which they don't know, did not finish the work of salvation at the cross. How do I know that? Because I was a Roman Catholic for 21 years, studying to be a Jesuit priest, which is the Marines of priests. And I knew the catechism word for word. And it is saying exactly opposite what the Bible has to say. And there are 1.2 billion people around the world who are deceived. Why are you picking on the Catholics? If telling the truth is picking on people, I'm picking on everybody. Because I would much rather pick on you and have you be irritated by it than lie to you that everything is fine and no matter, there are, are many roads to God and, you know, if you want to, if you're in Los Angeles and you want to get to New York, going west is a much better idea than going east. No, it isn't. I'm not going to tell you that. If you go west, you better be able to swim. Go east. Revelation 3.17, because you Laodicean believers say, I am rich and have become materially wealthy and I have need of nothing, And you don't know that you're spiritually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Revelation 3.18, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become spiritually rich. And white garments, not the black garments that give you material wealth, buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I advise you to buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Material wealth blinded the Laodicean believers to their spiritual poverty. Well, Laodicea and Heropolis are right near Colossae. Heropolis was known as a healing city because it had hot springs that people used as a spa. And many people from Rome chose to retire there because they could get a nice hot bath. And, you know, that's good for old people. You know, it helps us with our joints. Amen. Yeah, it helps us when we got our walker. 
you know, we got some people here in the congregation <laughs> that have to use a walker. Amen. <laughs> All the crutches we use to keep ourselves from using our muscles. It's amazing. So let's take a look at a map. And if you look at this map, and I meant to print out this today, but I'll, I'll make sure I have it for you next time. But to the left on the map is Greece. If you can see the map, it's the area in yellow. And Greece is over there. You can see Athens. And Corinth is right near Athens. And that's one of the churches that Paul founded. And we just completed our study of 1 Corinthians. And then to the right of Athens and Corinth, Corinth is a body of water, the Aegean Sea. And then to the right of that, you'll notice the city Ephesus, which is a coastal city, a city of commerce, highly trafficked cultural center. And that's likely the reason why Paul parked himself there for three years at God's direction. And that makes it even more of a curiosity why he would write a letter to a congregation in Colossae, which was in the middle of nowhere, which wasn't a cultural center. But we'll find out why he did that. On the map, you should be able to locate Heropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae just to the right of the Aegean Sea. And in addition, over to the right even more in the orange area, you'll see Tarsus, the city that Saul is from, Paul. And uh, it's just above Cyprus and just to the left of Syria. So I'll give you a copy of that map because I think it really helps that, that you know that when we're studying this stuff, these were people who actually lived in places that are actually on the earth. And if you, if you went to Turkey today, you could go over to Colossae and you would see a lot of the ruins of the structures that existed there at the time. The letter to the Colossians has four chapters, 95 verses, and it is power-packed with information about our peerless Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And next week, we'll continue the overview as we continue to answer the questions that we posed in the beginning of the study. Well, the closing moments of our study are dedicated to anyone who does not have a relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want you to know that God wants you. And what God wants from you is for you to make the most important decision of your life, the decision for or against Christ. There is a person at the very core of Christianity who cares about you, Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the truth. He is God. And the good news for you is that God wants a relationship with you. And this is your chance to have a personal relationship with him. The bad news is that you were born a sinner. Sinners need a savior. That savior is Jesus Christ, and he wants you to be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 prove it. It says, This is what is good and acceptable in the sight of the God who is our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who desires for all men to be saved and who desires for all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that, that has to prompt something in your head. If God wants all people to be saved, how is it that some people are not? 
How is it that some people actually end up in the lake of fire? Does God damn them to the lake of fire or do they choose to go there? Oh, they choose it. Oh, my goodness. So you will spend eternity in the lake of fire, a physical death, if you choose not to believe in Jesus Christ. And that is your choice. And nobody's going to bother you about your choice. It's yours and yours alone. Nobody can coerce you. Nobody can make you do it. But be clear on this. There's only one way to get to heaven. By placing your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done at the cross on your behalf. There is nothing that you could ever do to save yourself. So if you're going to place your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation, you probably should get to know him as soon as you can. And while there are many things to know about him, here are some of the critical things. First, the Lord Jesus Christ is your creator. John chapter 1, verse 3 says this, All things came into being through the Lord, God the Son, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So if you exist, he created you. Another thing you should know is that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you unconditionally. And the word un, the, the un part of unconditionally means with no conditions. He expects nothing from you. You have never disappointed him. It's impossible for you to disappoint him. He's omniscient, so there's nothing you've ever done that he didn't know even before he created you. He loves you unconditionally, and he is not saying, well, I love you if. He's he's saying, I love you no matter what. And you don't even love yourself that way. 1 John 4, verse 8 says this, The one who does not have unconditional love does not know the Lord, for the Lord is unconditional love. It's his person, it's his identity. The Lord Jesus Christ has already forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 says, I, even I, the Lord, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why won't he remember your sins? He's omniscient. He knows everything, so why doesn't he remember your sins? Because there are seven billion of you doing a million sins. That would be too much work. He doesn't bother himself with that much work, amen? And it's not seven billion, it's seven billion of you now. There have been many billion more people on the earth before this. But that's not why he does it, because he loves you. The Lord doesn't want you to work to please him. Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says this, If salvation is by God's grace, and of course it is, first class condition, if, it's no longer on the basis of your works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What is grace? It's God not giving us, giving, it's God giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. (laughs) He is so cool. It's just amazing how cool he is. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want you to go to the lake of fire. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise of salvation as some accuse him of. Instead, he is patient toward unbelievers, not wishing for any of you to perish in the lake of fire, but for all of you to come to repentance. And what does repentance mean? It means changing your mind about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect person to lead you to salvation. 
Well, God's graciousness offers you the chance to be saved as a free gift. So how can you get to heaven? This loving, forgiving, and patient God who wants you to be saved is willing to save you right this minute. John chapter 14, verse 6 says this. Jesus said to the doubting apostle Thomas, I am the way to salvation. I am the truth through the word of God, and I am the resurrection life, the Zoe life, eternal life. And no one comes to God the Father in heaven but through believing in me. Right where you sit, right now, you can tell God the Father that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the moment of eternal life for you. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. So heed the warning in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment, eternal life right at that moment. That is not a future event. It's an immediate gift once you believe in Christ. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. Who is this God who saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, I, Paul, delivered to you as of primary importance the gospel message I also received from God, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the Old Testament scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Old Testament scriptures. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from all the pretenders. None of the pretenders, the Pope, Buddha, Dalai Lama, Joseph Smith, none of those Allah, none of those pretenders, Mohammed, none of those pretenders ever were resurrected from the dead. None of them died for you, and none were resurrected from the dead. Now, when you get to know Jesus Christ, you'll have no problem placing your confidence in him, both for your salvation and for everything else. Why? Because you'll know that the sovereign God of the universe wants a relationship with you. He loves you unconditionally. He died for you. So take advantage of his grace and be saved right now. Let's close with music. The Lord our God is the great I am. At least that's what he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, Behold, put that up. Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? The Lord God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is all about I am. That should be Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians is all about the great I am. And that's the person June Murphy is singing about, our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ.
My Hero 2. You can't have them all to yourself. Selfish. So selfish. Let's close with some words of worship for our Almighty God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Jesus and he will make your path straight. For the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He'll be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might promote you at the proper time, slamming all your cares on his back because he cares for you. And we know that he cares for you is a Greek idiom. And what it means is God considers your problems to be his responsibility. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you that we can count on you. We thank you that we can slam all our cares on your back. We pray that when we do that, that we don't take them back, that we leave them in your capable and competent hands to resolve because we know that you work all things together for our good. And we just ask that you continue to open our spiritual eyes. And as we go forward in our week, that we see the unbelievers that are in our periphery and we give them the gospel message, that we see the believers that are in our periphery and we invite them to the word of God. And we pray that you take all the problems that do not have a human solution and bring your supernatural power to them so that we can see one more time that we have the victory as Christians and as saints and that you have orchestrated everything because you are on our side. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening.